The Tom Woods Show, episode 2265. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. We all know it is time for us to break up, but everybody's status quo bias is standing in the way of this obvious and humane solution. Check out my brand new ebook called National Divorce, The Peaceful Solution to Irreconcilable Differences, which you can get for free at nationaldivorce.com. Hey, folks, Tom Woods here. Clint Russell is with me today. You may know Clint from Liberty Lockdown. He appeared on the scene with that podcast in, of course, 2020. And then since then has just zoomed up the ranks and now he's interviewing all our top people and just goes to show you you stick with something. Not only do you not give up, you just keep on going and going, make a name for yourself, you get good at what you're doing and you have success. So Clint, you are a modern day, I don't know what you're, you're modern day something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Yeah, it's been an incredible journey. I just feel as if I have stumbled into doing what I am most passionate about, and I could not be more grateful for the welcome that I've received in the open arms from many of my heroes, including yourself. All right, well, let's start actually talking a little bit about where you came from. So what were you doing before you lowered yourself into the world of podcasting? (laughs) I ran a mortgage business. I was a private money mortgage broker in San Diego, California. I brokered a couple hundred million dollar loans. I was doing great, loving my life. And then the lockdowns happened. And because I worked from home, I wasn't technically shut down by the state of California. But instead, because of my understanding of Austrian economics and the uncertainty that came with the lockdowns, knowing that there would be cataclysmic knock-on economic effects because of those insane decisions, I could no longer in good conscience as a fiduciary invest my people's capital. So I informed them that I would be shutting down and started Liberty Lockdown that same month. And the rest is history. Doesn't some of that rest include relocating? Yes. Uh, about a year year later, I, I because I'm a real estate investor and developer, I had a lot of liquidation I had to do before I could get out of there. So I spent about about a year longer than I would have liked to in California. And then I basically hopped in my car, drove across the country, went to Freedom Fest and a bunch of different events and ultimately ended up in Miami. So it's a total upheaval in my life, but I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So many good, decent people have relocated here. I was lucky. I relocated here six and a half years ago before I knew that it would matter. And now here we are. Boy, that was a good decision. That was a good decision. I had been thinking about relocating. I'm not joking. I've been thinking about relocating to Massachusetts just because I have a lot of roots there and friends and I know Boston like the back of my hand. And oh, wow, that was a dodged bullet that I didn't (laughs) put my kids through that, honestly. No, no, for sure. Anybody that shares our value system that has stayed behind enemy lines, like I don't know how you're still doing it, to be honest, but I understand it. You have family ties, you have businesses and just sometimes you feel as if it's not the time, but I think that most of us that did take that leap don't look back on that decision with anything but optimism and hope. I could have sworn I had seen you say something like, maybe I'm confusing you with somebody else, that you're retired. I mean, are you still in the housing game to any extent? No, actually, I am retired. I was very successful in my mortgage company and I had enough net worth. I mean, I don't have kids. I'm not like crazy rich or anything, but I, 
certainly had a, enough saved up that I no longer needed to work. And I was able to just pour myself into what I was most passionate about. And contrary to popular belief, there's not a ton of money in the podcast game, particularly, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> particularly when you're starting up. So when people call me a grifter and things like that, I find it hysterical because I don't think they have any concept of how much money I used to make versus what I do now. Oh, yeah. And anytime you wanted to, strictly speaking, you could get back in that and make of course. 80 gajillion times as much money. So yeah, the, most of these people who say grifter are just, I would say almost always are just envious losers. Almost always. That has been the trend that I've noticed for sure. But because I of my Austrian economics background and because I, I was lucky enough and smart enough to save up and invest heavily, I was totally financially free in 2020 when the world went insane. So I decided, well, if I have all of these resources, I, I'm, I'm yet to have started a family, like I better do something valuable for the world. And I thought that speaking out against the lockdowns in that moment was about as valuable a thing as you could do. And obviously the show has evolved tremendously by having Dr. Robert Malone and Dr. Ladapo just yesterday uh, and Viva Fry tomorrow. And, you know, it's like... It's crazy the arc that it's been on, but I was very inspired by Joe Rogan, who was the first podcaster I ever listened to, and then Dave Smith, who I stumbled on when on his first appearance on Joe Rogan, and I was like, "Oh, you can actually do this! Like people actually want to hear our ideas." And this is why Dave was such an inspiration to me, and now he's become a good friend of mine, which is totally surreal and weird. But I just hope that like people realize that there is a market for what we have to say, and hopefully, more and more people that share our passions get involved. Maybe not in the podcast game, but however they see fit. I'm going to just flat out ask you, how old a guy are you? I just turned 40. Okay. Okay. So you got out of what you were previously doing a few years ago then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 38. And yeah. So you were able to, you're in quite an enviable position, let's just say. So I guess I'm curious though, how does a young guy, which is what you were when you were in that business, you say, I had an Austrian economics background. How did you get that background? Where'd that come from? My dad actually was. In the 1980s, he stumbled into, or actually late 70s, he stumbled into libertarianism. So I've told this story before, but it's pretty funny. My parents were separated when I was very young, but my dad owned a nightclub that was about five hours away from where I was living with my mom. And he would take me on these five-hour road trips because I spent one week and a month with him when I was five and six years old. And he would tell me these extended stories because we had five hours of just talking he would tell me these extended stories about our founding fathers and because he was an entrepreneur and he was formerly a gold, like a precious metals trader. He just informed me about both the values, the principles that went into the foundation of our nation, but also the economic ideals and the reason that property rights and free market economics were such a blessing to the world. And it was just imbued in me. I really understood it at a very young age. And from there, I just kind of extrapolated that seeking of knowledge. And I would just read everything I get, get my hands on. And it served me really well when I got into the entrepreneurial world because I was responsible for risk management and delayed gratification and expressing to people the nature of compounding interest and things like that. And it was just a perfect fit. And then I feel as if once again, I have a perfect fit because ESG and the insanity that came with that, I was one of the few people in our scene that like had a very high level finance and investment background that was able to express it in a way that I could kind of break it down and let people know why it was so dangerous. So I don't know. I don't believe in God, but I do absolutely feel as if if I have a purpose in this life, I'm following it. And I've been blessed to just kind of continuously step into the next 
phase of my life with purpose and meaning and passion. It's been quite a journey. Well, it's interesting you mentioned ESG because I wanted to ask you about that next, given that on the couple of occasions that I've covered it on my podcast, I've had people say, why don't you talk to Clint Russell about it? And the answer was, I didn't realize at that time how much you knew about it. Or of course, we would have done this a lot sooner. So better late than never. First of all, what does ESG stand for? What's it all about? And what's the big deal? Yeah, ESG is Environmental, Social, and Governance. It began via the UN in 2004-05 arena. It was quickly adopted by all of the biggest money managers on earth and all of the biggest businesses on earth. And then it was taken up under the mantle of the World Economic Forum in the 2010 to 2012 arena. And over the past three years, it really became full force because Larry Fink of BlackRock sends out these letters once a year to all of the biggest businesses on the planet saying, hey, if you want any of our $10 trillion that we manage, you're going to have to get on board with this ESG stuff. And I mean, that's just an enormous incentive and one that I believe is ultimately extraordinarily dangerous and one that I don't think will improve the world, but instead ultimately create inflation, shortages, starvation, complete economic tumult. And because I understood that very early on, much earlier than most people, I decided to make that a big part of my show and trying to get our people to be the ones that are on the front lines of this message. Because basically, anytime we identify a problem in the world, if it's not the libertarians that are delivering that warning, you end up getting status solutions that are offered. And I, I just... I refused to have that be the case. So I was, I was trying, to, trying to get anybody that I could to, from our scene to start to talk about it. And I'm very grateful that most of us have. Well, so what do you think the right approach to it is, especially when it has really swept the boards? There's no strict requirement that you have to follow these criteria, but at the same time, there's no strict requirement for corporate CEOs to be woke, and yet they are. So true. what is the answer to this? I personally believe that it's just important that we emphasize that it's the big business's relationship to the government as well as the central banks that is ultimately the reason that they can behave in such a improper, non-fiduciary manner. And ultimately, I do believe that they are violating their fiduciary duty to their investors and they will see lawsuits over this. So I think that there is legal remedy to be found. But I also think that if you just strictly turn to the GOP, they're going to start to do things like bans, just outright bans. And I don't necessarily, even though as a Band-Aid, that's probably better than just allowing it to metastasize uncontrollably. I think that really it's the relationship to the government, it's the size of government that is ultimately the reason that this continues to propagate. And if we can address that, that is really the root. I like to strike the root. This is why I harp on central banking so often is because that really is the root of so much that ails us. And once again, ESG is a product of big business and big government and central banks in collusion with one another. And we have to be able to educate people as to why this is so complicated, but also so urgent and not think of this as some nebulous thing that we can't possibly convey to the average person. Like they, We have to find a way. We cannot allow for status solutions to this issue. It's abolition movements that ultimately will be the true cure. It's surprising, it may seem surprising to many people, that something like ESG, that very obviously on its face, is damaging to business. And it's just obstacles, and it's just, it slows them down, it gets them preoccupied with things that are, have nothing to do with what they're 
actual mission is. But yet apparently there must be enough benefit that some of these firms and industries get from touting their ESG scores or whatever, that that must, whatever these nebulous benefits are, they must apparently outweigh all the trouble they have to go to to get those scores. Yes, it's actually pretty straightforward. Because of the ESG scoring system, you normally have 33% of your scores based off of environmental, and then the other thirds are social and governance. If you don't have a score that is, I think it's north of 70 or at least 60, you cannot get invested in by any of these ESG funds, be it Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock. And when you're talking about tens of trillions of dollars that are being managed under ESG guidance, by some estimates, it's upwards of 50 trillion. Well, if you're a publicly traded company, you don't stand much of a chance of surviving in that environment. So in the short term, you would almost certainly prefer to sacrifice bottom line by virtue signaling with some sort of ad campaign that ultimately pushes away some of your customers because it increases your ESG score, which on the back end means that there will be a buyer of your shares of your company. And I know that sounds completely counterintuitive because it is, because you shouldn't be doing that. If you're losing if you're losing revenue, if you're losing customers, you shouldn't have people that are more interested in investing in you. But that's why ESG works. I mean, it doesn't work long term, but in the short term, that's why it works. And this is why CEOs have gone along with it. And many of them are too afraid to speak out. This is why I am more of a fan of Elon Musk than many libertarians that do not trust him is because he was one of the few people at that level of power that was willing to speak out. And he said it explicitly, ESG is evil. He's right. And I think that the more people wake up to it, the less successful it will be. And fortunately, there have been some, unfortunately, it's very partisan in nature, but there have been some red state governors that have come out and said, okay, we're going to stop allowing our state pensions to be invested in ESG funds. I don't think that that's a statist answer at all. I think that's totally reasonable. Like It's counter to the benefits of your people to allow this to continue. So just divest yourselves of these people that are trying to destroy you. Like That makes perfect sense. So DeSantis and other states, I think Louisiana and a few others have done so. And because of that, I think that many of these money managers are starting to think to themselves, okay, we we have to regroup. We have to circle back. We have to, they're probably just going to rebrand it with something. But for now, they have taken a major hit and that's huge progress. Well, since I now know that you have been aware of these ideas since you were a pretty young kid, I can ask you legitimately how your thinking, let's say, may have evolved. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you've changed your mind necessarily, but maybe your emphasis, just your overall impressions might be different now than they were, let's say, five years ago. Because I know for a fact, the way I look at the world is different now than it was three years ago. And that's due in part to what I observed in 2020, not just from the state, but also from my fellow citizens. And it has made me less... I don't know if the word is naive about the prospects for people dispassionately looking at ideas and coming to the right conclusion. I feel like they had ample opportunities. There were many, many potential off-ramps during the craziness that people could have taken where you know there were bits of evidence coming out that a curious person could have found, realized that they don't match up with what they're being told and taken an off-ramp off the craziness. And they chose instead to forge ahead. And so that has affected, in effect, my, such as it is, strategy, my overall outlook, my emphasis, the tone of my content. How would you address the same issue? Well, 
I definitely share your story arc there. I think that two ways I've changed dramatically is that one, I believed that the vast majority of the people in America in particular shared our values and I was wrong. And that hurts. You know, that's something that I'm still coming to terms with. I don't know if I'll ever come to terms with it, honestly, because I spent my entire childhood believing that the vast majority of people valued free speech and they valued capitalism and they valued bodily autonomy, just baseline what I believed were American values. And so many people gave up on it. So that was very hard. But I do think that the other thing that I've changed on is that I used to have a kind of, I'm just going to focus on myself and that's all that matters and I'll be fine because I'm capable and I'm smart and I'm hardworking and I can find my way through. And what I realized is like, if I don't concern myself with the rest of the world, or at least the rest of the country, maybe this isn't going to be something that I can live with. And that changed me a lot. I remember when I first started my company, you know, a decade ago or so, I felt as if I didn't need to concern myself with politics because I'll just work through it. And 2020 just taught you like, there is a level of tyranny that is so untenable that anybody that shares our belief system, you just become activated. So I now approach everything I do with a level of urgency that I have never felt in my life. And I think that comes through in my show for sure. That like everybody that shares our value system needs to become engaged in some form or fashion. Even if it's just your family, okay, then it becomes homeschooling. If you're a business person, okay, I'm going to not include mandates. I'm going to laugh in the face of people that try and get me to go down the ESG or the woke route. If you're a commentator, you're going to deliver it with more gusto, with more urgency. I think a lot of people feel that way though. And that's good. I think that it's necessary. If we allow the people that aren't awake to lead us, it's going to end in disaster. So I don't know if that answers your question, but... No, it's a good, it's a good answer. It's a good answer because one of the questions that comes up all the time is, what do you expect me to do? I've right. listened to your show. I get all the arguments. I agree with you. But I don't know exactly what you want me to do with this information. Maybe I mm -hmm. could spread it to my friends. But then what do they do? We're not entirely sure what the next step is. And I think the prospect of reaching enough people through our broadcasts to make an actual dent in, frankly, all the destructive people out there, of whom there are many tens of millions, is not a reasonable expectation. So, <laughs> so then what exactly do we do? So my thinking has been, we can have a diversity of approaches to this, that it depends in part on your own particular skill set and the time you have on your hands. Maybe, maybe you're somebody with no time, but some money, and you'd like to put the money to a good cause. So mm -hmm. I try to feature people on the show. I would not be embarrassed if my listeners sent them money, like at the 10th Amendment Center the other day. I think I actually may be the number one donor to the 10th Amendment Center. I mean, literally in the whole world, I think I'm the number one donor. So I, I can tell you, if I give my own money to these people, you guys can trust them. But I've also been emphasizing, as I think you know, that I know I can't go wrong, can't possibly go wrong by telling people, at the very least, work on yourself and try to create the best household you can and the best career and work and perhaps self-employment options for the sake of yourself and your family, for your long-term security, things like that. It can never be the wrong answer to say, 
be a better version of yourself. That can never be wrong because there are skills you can acquire that you will never regret having. You know, so like recently in my School of Life program, I sat down, I did a seminar on how to be a better writer. Most people are atrociously bad writers. Atro- <laughs> they think that the ones who think they're good are the worst. You know, they, they, they think they're good because they use a lot of long, big words and whatever. No, that's awful writing almost always. Or I sat down and I did a session on uh, how to be an effective public speaker, which I think I am, or how to be confident in a room full of strangers. You know, So in other words, there are a lot of things you can learn, like how to build a business, how to get your kids educated in a world that can't stand you. But also there are these other qualities about just making yourself into a more impressive person, the kind of yes. person you yourself admire from a distance in a crowded room. You see somebody who seems to be the life of the party without being an attention-seeking narcissist. You think, mm-hmm. yeah, I want to be that guy who's articulate, who's easy with strangers. And and so I focused on that, on, on taking my tribe and having us learn these sorts of things so that we can be in our own personal lives as successful as possible. I want the libertarian world to have a reputation of being made up of successful people who are well put together, not slobs who spend all their time arguing on the internet. Right. I couldn't agree more. And in fact, I think that it's a, it's really a prerequisite that you have yourself together if you're going to change the world. So like if your goal is to change the world and your life is in tatters, but you're investing all of your time into activism, well, you're probably not going to be able to lead us out of the darkness into the light. And I don't say that to dissuade anyone from activism. I think that it's beautiful that you still have that passion and you're willing to, to sacrifice to do so. But people follow impressive people. That's just reality. And ultimately also, you are not able to dedicate your time or energy to these things if you're not financially free. And I've managed to do both. And I'm very fortunate, but it's also tremendous work ethic and sacrifice that has put me in this position. So I, I make no apologies for it. I think that I would love to see far more people in our arena that have entrepreneurial success. I encourage my audience regularly to like I just emphasize, you will never get paid what you're worth as long as you're working for someone else. And also because of the woke environment that has taken over corporate America, which used to be the avenue for some level of financial freedom, people like us are not long for that world. And we're going to have to create parallel institutions to compete with it. And also on an optimistic note, there is no reason we can't trounce these people. Like They are not focused on innovation. They are not focused on the bottom line. They are not focused on productivity or cost-cutting or any of the things that an entrepreneur who is successful will be like a laser beam focused towards. So we have a competitive advantage in many ways. We understand economics better than they do. We understand central banking better than they do. We understand what it takes to be successful. Take them on. Like We want to see these people replaced. Replace them. And I know it sounds crazy because we also are functioning in basically a fascistic model (laughs) where you're going to be attacked from all angles, but none of this is easy. Like I think people should just set that aside. Like This is going to be hard, but the alternative is hell. So why not try? Why not give all of yourself to this and start with yourself? If your life is in dysfunction, you need to get it together. This is why I loved Jordan Peterson back in the day is because he was spreading that message. That message needed to be heard. The reason he went viral is because it was so desperately needed and extrapolate from there. 
take that lesson, build off of it, then pair it with our additional understanding of the issues with government, and you become a lethal weapon. So let's create an arsenal, Tom. And not to mention, you're helping more than just yourself in a lot of cases. So for instance, if you do in fact launch a successful business, we now have one more business that might be willing to hire undesirable people. I'll put it that way. Whatever group is currently under attack, so it was the people without the shots for a while were having trouble finding work because it was a requirement everywhere that they get them. Well, the more sensible people we have out there, the more options ordinary people who share our views will have. I'm quite sure a lot of people who either lost a job or couldn't find one during these awful years wish more libertarians had been out there ready to hire them. You know, so you're helping more than just yourself when you get things together, you start something up. And it's not to say you can't have a perfectly content and successful life as an employee. You absolutely can. It's not Mm -hmm. everybody is calling to be an entrepreneur, but I think sometimes there are people who do have that calling, but because it's not really emphasized in our society, there's no, you're not learning about it in school or anything. You're learning how a bill becomes a law, but you're not learning how a market works or how you develop a niche or provide for, come up with a customer avatar. You don't get any of this. And so I think because of the lack of emphasis, people's callings go unresponded to. Mm -hmm. And so I think you and I nudging them a little bit, that's the voice that should have been talking to them when they were in high school, but better late than never. I couldn't agree more. And and also the depression, the suicide rates, the drug addiction, all of this is a product of a purposelessness. And I want to assist in that process as much as I can. You know, I I want people to, like. I, I think that the easiest advice to someone who is in that position is to, if you have a passion, which I think most people do to some extent, you must pursue it. You cannot ignore it and just do your nine to five and grind a miserable existence out. You will be so much more fulfilled if you can follow that path, even if failure happens. Like it's still better to live that way. I genuinely believe that. And I just, I want to imbue in, in our people a level of courage to go out and do that to give it a shot, particularly to the younger people. You know, if you have a family and you have five kids or something like, yes, you have to make sure that they stay fed in house. Like I get that. But if you're a young person that doesn't have those responsibilities, you don't have an excuse. And if you share our values, you have the potential to create something truly revolutionary in this world. So while you're young, while you can take those risks, please, please, please do. For my sake, as much as yours, I I want to see the most successful people in the world be people that share our value system. I think that that is really how we outcompete and create the future we want to see and we stop being victims of it. Hey folks, quick sponsor message from one of the genuinely good guys out there and that's my friend Richard Grove. Richard and I want you to accomplish great things in 2023 but you can't do it if you haven't got your inner game right. Well, this very Sunday, January 15th, 2023 at noon Eastern, Richard is holding the Autonomy Mindset event. Autonomy is his fantastic group, by the way, which I've spoken to before. And what an audience of action-taking people who are committed to accomplishing great things. They're not defeatists who shoot down everything you suggest and think everything is doom and gloom. These are action-oriented people, and it's a wonderful community to be a part of. And you can attend the Autonomy Mindset event for either $0 or $47, your choice. During the free lecture, 
Richard's going to unveil how to build an anti-fragile, infinite growth mindset. And then you can put this mindset to work right away with a powerful interactive goal-setting workshop for just $47. Everybody attending this workshop will have gotten there from a good podcast like this one. So it means these people kind of know where things are at. So remember, the lecture is free, plus you can turbo boost the experience, if you like, with that goal-setting workshop for just $47. So head over to tomwoods.com slash mindset, and you'll be well on your way to an excellent new year. That's tomwoods.com slash mindset. I think people are going to revolt if I mention one more time that I turned 50 in 2022. (laughs) I think that has come up. I don't know why this is such an existential crisis for me that I keep mentioning it, but it really, (laughs) really was quite striking suddenly Mm -hmm. to realize, oh boy, I'm in the, I'm in the, pretty soon when you get those drop down menus that ask for your age, I'm not going to be in the 36 to 50 anymore. I'm going to be in the 51 to 65, like some old person, (laughs) you know? So it, it is a little bit, disorienting. But now that I've gotten to this age, oh my gosh, do I understand why they used to say youth is wasted on the young. Now, I accept all people, E-X-C-E-P-T, I accept all people who listen to this show. Because if Mm -hmm. you're a young person listening to this show, you're way, way ahead of most young people. But I think, gosh, if I had had some of these habits and I'd had this kind of direction that I have now and I'd known what I was doing and I learned stuff about business that I know now that I didn't know then... I would be running an empire by now. If mm-hmm. I had started then, if I had had a mentor, if I had really known what I was doing, again, but particularly building up certain good habits. And so it, you know, I'm almost thinking maybe I should create maybe somewhere in my little school of life program a separate thing about the kinds of habits that lead to, I don't like these habits that lead to success thing because the habits tend to be so generic and obvious Wake up early in the morning. First of all, you know what? I sleep late every single day. Does not affect my productivity at all. So any any of you people who think that being on a farmer's schedule makes you morally superior, I don't accept that. You can do that. I have no problem with it. Just don't look down on me. But a lot of these things are, they're just not actionable enough. They're not specific enough. But I Mm -hmm. would like to come up with like a list of them. Look, if you can try and master the following five things, By the time you're 25, you are going to be going places. Anyway, I'm thinking out loud. Normally, Clint, I give other people homework assignments. Here I am giving myself (laughs) myself an assignment. But anyway, the reason we're talking this way is we're talking out of love. Mm -hmm. We love this movement. We love what it stands for. We love these ideas. We just want to see it succeed. And we feel like, I'm not saying there's no room for any more books. There, There always is. But I don't think we have any shortage of books. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. think we have any shortage of the scholarly material. But what we do have a shortage of is public faces who are the kind of people that inspire others that say, you know, whatever that person is up to, I think I want to be up to that same thing. I just want to see more of those because apparently the book route has run its course. You know, it's converted as many as it's going to convert. But to just have our people just one after the other be well put together, impressive, well-spoken, smart, clever, quick on their feet, that's what I want. Yeah, I preach. And I think that what I've also realized over the past couple of years is like, I didn't think that because I'm not necessarily the type that needs to be led, I thought that leadership wasn't so important. But people really do. They need inspiration. They need leaders in our movement that they can be inspired by and they can follow in their footsteps, their mold. And I think, you know, I'm very fortunate in that I had 
a dad who was an entrepreneur and very successful. And I had a stepdad who I was more raised by, who was very personable and loquacious, uh, just, just, uh, and, and hilarious too. I had such great male figures in my life that formulated who I was. And so many people lack that. I'm not necessarily saying in our movement, just more broadly. And we, we now, because of the advent of technology and the internet and social media, we're able to reach so many more people. I just think that in some ways, that's what I'm finding myself in the position of. I get so many DMs from young people saying, you're really inspiring me. And that's even now I get kind of choked up thinking about it because it's just so, it's so sad, you know, that just a stranger on the internet, some mortgage broker from San Diego is what people feel like they need in their lives. But it's very fulfilling to feel like I can do that for people. Yeah. And especially when I wasn't even, I didn't set out to do that. So it just, it just tells me that there's a market demand. Like there's people that need it. And if there's more people in our movement that can provide it, then I think that the world will be in a much better place. Well, I'll tell you something. I myself took Murray Rothbard as my kind of inspiration when I was mm-hmm. younger. You know, of course, the vast majority of what he did involved writing and speaking and some organization. I mean, of course, he had a hand in the Libertarian Party and some things like that. But what I admired about him was how productive he was and how knowledgeable he was. And so in my early years, I was pretty productive. I mean, you have no idea how many articles I wrote and I was traveling all the time and speaking and I wrote a lot of books. Now my productivity you know, goes through other channels. I write two newsletters a day. I do uh, podcast, stuff like that. But I mean, I was writing introductions to books when I wasn't actually writing the book itself. I was enormously productive. I wouldn't have been if I hadn't seen this guy. And it wasn't like I thought to myself, I'll be the next Rothbard. I don't have the mental abilities for that. And I, and I also had five children. He didn't have any. So even if I did, I wouldn't have been able to be as productive. But just seeing that something like that was possible. Right. And thinking, gosh, I would like to be that person. I'd like to be that person who knows so much about so many things. The few times I had a chance to talk to him, no matter what I brought up, he could give me a whole bibliography of references that almost no college professor would even know existed for me to go do further reading. Right. And I, I just thought, this man is a marvel. So yeah, I'm not going to be him, but he makes me want to work harder. In fact, I'll tell one quick little story. We went to, I went to the memorial service for Rothbard that was held later in, maybe in March of 94, and Walter Block was there, as were many of Murray's admirers, even people he had maybe been on the outs with toward the end of his life, they came to pay their respects. It was actually very nice to see. But I saw Walter Block, and he said that he was very affected by the death of Rothbard. So I don't know, I guess a matter of days afterward, he rented a bunch of movies, a blockbuster, and he was just going to watch movies. And he said, I got partway through one of them, and I thought, this is no way to honor Rothbard. He'd want me to work. So I got back to work writing. And I thought to myself, that in a way is kind of how I'm taking the loss of Rothbard, is that he worked really hard for not that much remuneration, certainly for very, very little mainstream recognition, but he did it because it was the right thing and because he loved it and he wanted to leave a legacy. And I thought, that's good enough. That's good enough. That's the man I want to be. That's beautiful. And for me, it was less Rothbard and more Ron Paul. Yeah. And it reminds me of, if you, I'm sure you've heard of the story of the four-minute mile and how it was unfathomable. (laughs) And then 
one guy does it. And then all of a sudden, like 10 or 15 other people do it the same year. And, and that's how innovation oftentimes works. That human beings are just, they're formulated by this belief that things that haven't been done are impossible. And then like once we prove that it's possible, then way more people suddenly believe that they can do it too. And I feel like that's what Ron Paul did for so many people. And also for myself, that's what Dave Smith did with the, his podcast and being on Joe Rogan so many times, I was like, oh, this is possible. Like there is a market for this. And once I knew that, well, then you couldn't stop me at that point, if that makes any sense. Like I, we went from basically being like, this is a pipe dream to direct my life towards podcasting about these ideas that I cherish so much to being an inevitability. Like that's how I felt when I saw Dave Smith on Joe Rogan. And that's also how I felt when I saw Ron Paul on the state, on the debate stage. And these moments matter. They matter so much more than in the moment you have any concept of. I, I think, I don't think Ron or Dave would accept me giving them that much credit, but it is so important. It is so important for everybody that's kind of following in their footsteps. And for you, it was Rothbard and, and many people feel that way too. And I hope that I can, I feel like that's what I'm most passionate about in a way is like carrying on their legacy more than creating one for myself. Because I genuinely believe that this message, this movement is so much bigger than an individual. It's like, it's ultimately in pursuit of salvation of liberty on earth. <laughs> like that, like it's so weighty. It's so heavy. It can't be carried by any one person. So yeah, sorry. I get, I get very heavy with this thing. Yeah. <laughs> these no, things. I I think about this sort of stuff a lot, especially as I look at my own kids. I just bought four of my kids. I have five. One of them's only eight. So I exempt her from my super serious stuff. But <laughs> I have a friend I had sat on the show, Matt McWilliams. He wrote a book called Turn Your Passions Into Profits. And I bought a copy for each of my four kids. I mean, that was, I didn't hesitate at all. I thought that they all need this knowledge. I could sit down and just give it to them in a series of seminars, but that's weird. I'm not doing that to my kids. <laughs> But it was when Matt told me that one of his own kids thought it was an interesting book. I thought, okay, then my kids must be prepared to read it. I just want, because I have a daughter. I don't want to say what niche she's in, but I don't know that she wants it public. Sometimes sure. she, she wants to build her following without having the special advantage of Tom Woods as her father. You know, and I, what, a, I, what a savage. I love it. I totally respect that, even though I'm dying to send an email about her work. <laughs> you know? I'm trying to respect her opinions on this. But anyway, She's doing really well. And I think, well, look, this is something, if you had, if you read this kind of, you acquire this information, this thing that you love doing, it has to do with, it's a scientific topic. And it's the kind of thing that you could monetize without a problem because there are people who are interested in particular niches of science mm -hmm. that are all nerds and they all have Instagram accounts or blogs or whatever. And you can monetize even nerdy subject areas. And I'm not saying that that's going to be her living, but, you know, maybe she winds up, she could wind up a stay-at-home mom. But yet mm -hmm. while she's staying at home, she can figure out ways to support the family that she would do anyway, things that she already enjoys. So I want them to know these sorts of things. So I, you know, I'm doing my best as a dad, basically, to prepare my own kids for life in 2023. You know, which is a very weird, unpredictable place where you can't count on anything other than your your own metal, basically. Yes. And so I'm trying to spread the same message to people who listen to me, more or less. Yeah. Well, and and if you think life in 2023 is weird, get ready for 2030, folks. Like, <laughs> I don't think it's going to get less strange. I, but at the same time, I, I do think that 
like the opportunities are really abundant and they're they're not as obvious i guess but you just you have so many new ways that you can create income streams and because that was kind of my specialty because i was investing in trust deeds i was investing in rental properties i was investing in developing real estate i just had all of these different income streams that like once they all even some of them being small once they all come together at the end of the day you end up with a very significant bottom line and i think that that's the future like you're it's going to be harder and harder to make the lion's share of your income working for someone else but you can have if you have three passions you can have three side hustles like you can really build something that starts as a side gig and becomes your primary and i feel like the sooner you start that process the better because because these new technologies are so new there's a lot of blue water is what entrepreneurs refer to it as like there's there's it hasn't been filled yet and it will eventually be but you have an opportunity in this moment to basically front run the market you get to be you get to be the leader and it's such a great place to be in like same with cryptocurrency same with podcasting like all of these things are such new technologies people feel like it's so saturated and oh it's you know i missed the boat it's like dude podcasting's been around for 12 years like same as cryptocurrency for the most part or 15 maybe you're not <laughs> you're not too late i promise like you you have so many opportunities in front of you so yeah i think that's great and if or when i become a father i certainly will be doing Similar, but I'll, I'll probably just make it a formal lecture series. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. How do people find you online? At Liberty Lockpot on Twitter and Liberty Lockdown on YouTube, Spotify, everywhere else. By the way, I just wanted to add, I will be on Tipcast IRL on January 17th, along with my buddy Top Lobster of my Tower Gang squad, Reed Coverdale and Jose Galasan will be following in our footsteps over on Timcast IRL over the next month. Couldn't, I mean, it's just the weirdest world is going to be the stupidest, funniest thing you've ever seen in your life. So make sure you guys check that out. That sounds absolutely great. And by the way, because just to forestall anything in the comments along these lines, anytime this gets brought up, people say, why hasn't Tom been on? You know, they have something against Tom. I want you to know that they've contacted me a couple of times, but it was a really, really busy time in my life. I said, I'm sorry, I just can't do anything. And likewise, Kennedy on Fox Business, I just, I can't do it. Yeah. Now I'm a little bit more free, but the thing is, I travel a lot because I, I'm making up for all those years when I was a Rothbardian workaholic. So I travel <laughs> a lot and you have to be in studio for Tim Cast, and I, I'd be very happy to do it. But if I have a month where I'm pretty much booked up in terms of travel, like the young ambitious me would have said, I'm dropping, I'm going to cancel all those so that I can do this. But right. the old me thinks, well, I don't know. I still just like to just go have fun. <laughs> so, oh, man, so we'll see. Yeah, no, it's a lot to ask. I mean, you have to I flew the first time I was on was a year and a half ago and I flew from San Diego all the way to DC and I was on that night. So, I mean, it is, it's taxing. Like it, people think you're just, oh, I'm, I'm there. You know, like there's a lot more that goes into it. So I don't blame you with your work schedule, but I still think that it should and ultimately probably will happen one of these days because it would be great. Yeah, I, I would certainly enjoy that. But all the same, I hope you do great on there and I hope people check you out. I'll have your links up at tomwoods.com slash 2265. Thanks a lot, Clint. Thank you very much, Tom. All right, folks, that is another episode of The Tom Woods Show. I will see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.